dad died just the day before I was appointed as president. But of course, given the nature of these processes, I'd gone through the interview. So I knew that I was the candidate who'd emerged successful from the interview and I was to be recommended to the governing authority on the Tuesday and dad died on the Monday. But I was able to go in and tell him that I was the successful candidate coming out of the interviews and he was overjoyed because you know we knew he was very sick uh, all the way through the process he was saying to me I'm not going to die until you get that job so <laughs> <laughs> he literally was able to die happy then uh, literally literally yes Hello again. In this episode of Insights, the newly appointed president of University College Dublin, Orla Feely, talks about her stellar career in engineering research, the challenges she faces in her new role, and she shares some wonderful memories of both her late father, the former Dublin city manager, Frank Feely, and her late sister, Emer, a successful public health doctor who passed away during COVID. Orla Feely, thank you indeed for coming in uh, to join us on the Insights with Sean O'Rourke podcast. Uh, You're still relatively new in the position of President of University College Dublin across the road. Uh, Congratulations on that appointment. Talking to people in a perhaps very unscientific way, uh, there's been a big welcome for your appointment. You're well known to students and staff, certainly staff and and people who previously worked there and studied there uh, as somebody who is of University College Dublin. You started there at a very young age studying engineering. I did, yes, yes. I started, I was quite young doing my leaving cert, so I was 16 coming into UCD studying engineering in what is now government buildings. Back then that was UCD Engineering School on Merrion Street. And first of all, I'm always conscious of how fortunate I was. I was, back in my day in the early 1980s, about 10% or so of those studying engineering were women. But even if you go back five years before that, there would have been only one or two women in a year of a couple of hundred. And I'm very conscious that those women pushed the door open, if you like, for the likes of myself. Um, I'm also very much aware of people like the late Christina Murphy in the Irish Times. You know, at that time, in the very early 1980s, there was a big sense that electronics in particular was a coming thing for Ireland and that we needed more women in it. And someone like Christina Murphy was really influential in that. Although I I was struck recently uh, for a talk I was giving, I was looking back at some of the articles that she wrote at the time to support women in engineering. They were exactly as I remembered. They were brisk and positive and factual and and great. And then next to one of the articles was this one by another journalist, a man, and it starts off, I'll read it to you. It gives the woman's name, which is quite unusual. It says, she is as beautiful as her name might suggest. She is 23, petite with dark, intelligent eyes and the figure of a ballet dancer. But her profession belies that description, for she's an industrial engineer. <laughs> can you believe? So Where was that published? That's the Irish Times. Yeah, in the early 1980s. Can, and, and can you, in your wildest uh, reckoning, imagine an article like that being written, submitted, let alone published to that paper or any other? And, and, and you can almost feel that the tug of war, if you like. You've got Christina Murphy there talking in a really positive, constructive way about the opportunities in engineering. You've got a profile of a woman engineer talking Go about on, her. Go on, tell us whose byline was on that. I, I, I can't remember. And even if I knew, I shouldn't say. 
Well, okay. Well, look, people will be obviously hunting in the archives. Now, what year did you say it was written? I guess 1980 or thereabouts. Okay, fine. Yes, well, yes. look, you've and got two big clues. Irish yes. Times, 1980, woman engineer. And, and and the article ends with the sentence, talks about all her views of engineering and so on, ends, she is not in favour of working wives after the children have arrived. So, you know, <laughs> just making it very, very clear. Women, know your place. Well, how things have changed. Mm. How, how was your student experience then back in those days? I mean, were you in any way conscious that, you know, you were different or breaking a mould? Uh, no, I wasn't. No. And, and you know, again, there were enough of us there, I think, young women in the course at the time that there, there was a sense of solidarity. You know, there, there was a sense that the change was coming and that this was, you know, a, a, now the natural way of the world. We felt very confident in, our, in, in ourselves. And I think not just as women, but as engineering students in Ireland. Ireland, as you, as you know, Sean, so well at that time, was an economic backwater, if, if not a basket case. And, you know, there was very, very little really quality engineering activity going on in the country at the time. There were always some notable exceptions, but by and large, we were educated way beyond the standards, the needs of the country at that time. Yeah, and I it was mean, that, sorry, it was, it was a very bleak time right enough. I remember that then the late Minister Jim Mitchell saying, look, you know, we survived the famine, we'll survive this. Mm. And uh, Gay Byrne uh, in a studio not far away used to say, how the country was banjaxed and there yes. was general uh, pessimism. Now, you were part of a generation and a lot of your classmates and you as well, you went abroad and having blazed a trail, I suppose, in UCD, you then went on to do something like that as well in, in Berkeley in California. That's right. I did my master's and PhD over in Berkeley and a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. Again, a very interesting time. You know, Berkeley, so famous for its countercultural movement back in the 60s in particular and yet I landed there in the middle of the Reagan years when there was a very, very different spirit. Again, that tug of war between, you know, different views of the world. So it was a wonderful place to live, a wonderful place to study and there were a number of Irish students there at the time and once again, we made our mark as a group of Irish students. We found ourselves, despite the the banjaxed, if you like, country that we'd, we'd come out of, we were so well educated and we were so confident and there was a sense that things were happening out of Ireland at that time. It was the time I remember queuing overnight, for example, with, with friends from all around the world for U2 concerts um, in the Oakland Coliseum. And then shortly after that, in the later part of my stage, you had the, the Jack Charlton years. So there was a sense economically, in terms of society, in terms of every aspect of our life that Ireland was transforming, Ireland was moving. Mary Robinson was elected president in my later years and got huge attention when she came and spoke in Berkeley. So it was a really interesting time. It was also the time of the Donnelly visas, the green card and all that kind of thing that was going on. Uh, did you consider at all, Orla, that you might actually make your life and career in the United States? Oh, I certainly did. And being in Berkeley there on the edge of Silicon Valley in the early 1990s when I was graduating with my PhD, the opportunities were extraordinary. And many of my friends who stayed in Silicon Valley have capitalised so well on those opportunities. Um, and yet for me, well, first of all, there, there was a, a tug to home and family, but also there was a sense of something really exciting brewing in Ireland. Uh, I knew I always wanted to work in higher education, always wanted to work in research. A position came up in UCD after years of hiring freezes in the university. So I said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to go for that and see if I can make a go of it. And uh, 30 odd years later, I've, I've very few regrets about that. I'm sure you haven't. Uh, and we'll come on to uh, the opportunities now that uh, you have to, to make a further contribution. But 
Tell me about your research. I mean, what did you concentrate on and then eventually became vice president for research in, mm. in, in UCD? So my research is in electronic engineering. It's quite analytical in nature. It looks at what are called nonlinear circuit systems. So most circuits, you know, people analyse them using straight line equations. But in reality, there are nonlinearities. So you have to take them into account for really, really precise design. So I looked uh, at that area um, got grants from Science Foundation Ireland, from industry, from the Irish Research Council. Over the years, built my research group in UCD and my students have gone on to wonderful careers in industry and academia. They're, they're doing fantastically and was very much enjoying that. Teaching as well, I loved. I just love teaching. Engineering students, particularly, if I may say so, UCD engineering students are a fantastic bunch and the energy and the vibrancy and the creativity you get from that environment is such, such an honour. And at this stage... 40 years or so on from your own time as a student what's the what's the male fem- female breakdown among university uh, engineering students in the university it's about a third women now so much much healthier and I, for many years, I was the only woman on the Faculty of Engineering and Architecture in UCD. Now, the college principal, so the head of the college, is a woman. Of the five engineering schools, three are headed by women. And we've got women at all levels of the academic ladder there. So it's it's really transformed UCD as it has the profession, as it has academia. Yeah, I think only, was it four years ago, there were no university or third level institution presidents mm. in Ireland now? I think of the 12 or so, including the new technical universities, there's a majority of women. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yes. And it's one of those things, you know, where uh, it's it takes you 20 years to become an overnight success. So it's becoming very apparent to people now because women have broken through that that highest barrier, if you like, within the universities. But it's the culmination of a lot of hard work all the way up through the structures of the university, such as in engineering, as I just mentioned. Um, It reflects I think the changing nature of academia, that we are so much more concerned now about how we engage with the world, about the difference that we make to the world. And so you need people who have that broad view of education and of higher education. And so women, I think, find their place in that much more happily than they would have done in the old smoke filled rooms, which were a reality when I started out. Yeah, a previous Minister for Higher Education, um, Mary Mitchell O'Connor, she introduced a scheme a few years ago called SALLY, the Senior Academic Leadership Initiative. It introduced female only professors um, now I think we've got 30 of those. Have you many of those in UCD? And what do you make of that scheme? Is it necessary at this stage? We've we, we a number of them and they're fantastic. And yes, it, it is still necessary. We still, particularly in certain disciplines, and the scheme targets those areas where the women are most underrepresented. So yes, we absolutely still need them and it's great to have them. Coming back to your role as Vice President uh, for Research, uh, you had that position for nine years. So what were you able to achieve in that? Oh, gosh, we achieved loads. So, um, you know, in terms of numbers, we greatly grew our research income, for example, our publications, all those those measures of research. We set up really interesting centres of excellence in UCD around areas like the bioeconomy, like advanced manufacturing, like personalised medicine, cancer care. So we really got, you know, we started to coalesce around very exciting areas. We grew our cross-cutting interdisciplinary research, which is absolutely essential in addressing the global challenges. Um, We did great work in innovation. You may know Nova UCD, just across the road, our centre for new ventures and entrepreneurs. We really grew the space there. We're developing a new ag tech incubator on our farm out at Lions Farm, just outside Dublin. Really grew the success of our spin-outs, put in a venture fund to support that success. So we put in a number, again, I, I always like, I suppose, as an engineer, when you can put in specific measures in support of a clear action and target. And clearly international rankings and matters like research and, and publications and so forth are very important. But I'm wondering about the 
you know, the priority or how things are prioritised that is there is there a risk that because you have such an emphasis on research and on publication and these are key matters where uh, university rankings are concerned that where does teaching sit in all of that? Because that's something that's really important to the students who go there and their parents who probably send them there or fund their, their experience there. And, and teaching is, of course, hugely important to us. And although, <clears throat> excuse me, I've been talking about research, of course, teaching is the other great pillar of a university. And, and we have invested so much and are doing wonderful work in teaching in UCD. But the two are not separate because if you want to deliver a truly valuable higher education, you have to have those delivering the education be at the leading edge. They have to know what is going on in the world. They have to be linked into the networks. They have to be preparing students, not just to solve the challenges of today, but to build careers for decades to come. So how do you monitor the quality of teaching? Oh, we've got all sorts of, we've got regular quality inspections. We've got external examiners. There are all sorts of agencies and individuals who are charged with exactly that, both internal to the university and external to the university to come in to monitor our quality. And, and we come out extremely well from that. People in UCD are extraordinarily committed to the education that we give our students and also to the experience of being a student in our university. There's also the question uh, about you know, how lecturers and how quality teaching is supported financially. I mean, it's not just UCD, but I think there was a report uh, by Michael Cush recently which suggested that something like a half of the by which I mean in the last couple of years, half of the teaching hours in, in Irish University are, are performed by people who are basically paid an hourly rate. That surely can't be right or sustainable. And I, I, I'm not familiar with the broader sector. Again, that kind of number would, wouldn't fit what we do in UCD. But we have a group within UCD looking at exactly that issue, the issue of hourly paid workers, because you're absolutely right. It's something that merits very significant attention. Yeah, because I think um, there's a possibility now the Irish uh, University or the IFUT, Irish University, uh, Federation of University Teachers, they're, they're talking about industrial action if this situation doesn't change. Uh, well, it's certainly something that we want to look at very, very carefully. Sometimes the figures are skewed because sometimes you will have, say, postgraduate students will take what is always going to be hourly paid work working in a lab for a few hours a week. So, you know, I don't know to what extent something like that might be skewing the figures, but it's something that, as I say, we are looking at because it is certainly something that we, we, we want to have outstanding staff. We do have outstanding staff in UCD and we want to treat them exactly as they deserve. But do you have people, say, teaching whole courses for a, two, uh, for a few thousand euro on, on, a, on an hourly paid basis? Uh, we, we certainly shouldn't. I'll, I'll tell you when our report comes in, but we certainly should not. Yeah, um, because again, they if they're if they're to provide that the, the kind of quality education that you want to provide, they surely should be rewarded as well as they're maybe permanently supported. Uh, the people on permanent staff. And we absolutely want to make sure that we, we treat our staff absolutely as well as they deserve and deliver through that, deliver our students the experience and the education that they deserve. So, yes, this is something that as a sector we are looking at and within UCD we are looking at. Clearly, there have been great opportunities uh, and you've spoken about them here in the research scientific area. Um, what about the humanities? Because that's an area that has been important going right back, I suppose, to the foundation of University mm. College Dublin. Absolutely. And, and we had a wonderful conference back in December on the centenary of the foundation of the Irish state. I spoke at it looking back at UCD's role in the foundation of the state. And you're absolutely right. Many of our humanities scholars were leaders, nationally leaders within our university and still are. If you look at where universities in Ireland do well in these international rankings, it is our humanities tradition that does particularly well. Um, 
an area that I'm so excited about in UCD is our library. We have a wonderful new librarian, Sandra Collins, who joined us from the National Library of Ireland. We've got huge ambition for our cultural collections. We have extraordinary collections in UCD and we want to do an awful lot more to bring them out to the world, to tell our story and tell the story of Ireland. The story of UCD and the story of the Irish state are so intertwined and there's a fantastic story to be told what there. Is, what, is a modern uni- what does a modern university library look like? I mean, because the days of shelves and shelves of mm. books are surely behind us. Uh, they are, yes, yes. So, you know, at some times of the year, students want a quiet space where they can study, but now they need power and wireless connections and so on there. But also you've got math support centres, you've got writing support centres, you've got special collections that people can drop in and use, you've got all sorts of new digital resources. So yes, it is a very, very different environment. We're putting big uh, thinking into what our UCD library is going to look like and over the coming years you're going to see something really exciting emerge there that will not only be a resource for our students but for the broader community. UCD, and you'd know this yourself far better than I would, it's got a long and proud tradition in Celtic study, mm. studies, history, the classics. Are they still important? Because one does get a sense maybe of people working in those areas. I mean, people will never be happy no matter where they're working, mm. but that maybe the humanities are being maybe a bit left behind. Uh, I I don't think that is the case in Irish universities as much as it would be in other jurisdictions, particularly, say, looking to the UK. Wasn't there a time, though, when UCD maybe would have had several chairs of history? Now, I think the chair of early Irish history was left unfilled when it became vacant a few years ago. And insofar as one can gather there are no plans to fill it. Uh, Well history is still a very very large and very important school for us in UCD it's one of our largest Um, I suppose maybe it's a question of the the evolution of our understanding of history we're much more more aware now of global history of things like war studies of the history of migration so there are new dimensions to history that perhaps the school is shifting in response to those but it is an enormously important But what about the area of history that we know best or should know best our own Oh, yeah. Early Irish history. Um, oh, but we've got we've we've got Heiko Hanrakan in that area. We've got people in more modern Irish history like Conor Mulva, like the Ferret, or people who are truly leading and championing our understanding of Irish history. Because a university like UCD will always have a very special and distinctive role to play in an area such as that. So no second class areas oh, as far as you're concerned. Not not in the slightest. Not in the slightest. Let's talk about the, the, the student experience. I mean, uh, it has transformed greatly, partly by technology, partly by economic circumstances. Um, how do you think the student, and you've got students of your own I now. I do, my two um, sons, yes. How does the student experience of today compare and contrast, to use that exam phrase, uh, with what applied in your own time? I think there are areas that are very much the same. You know, being together with a group of people, many of them away from home for the first time, certainly out of the constraints of school for the first time. The liberating effect of that, the friendships that you make, that is still absolutely as it was back in my day. And I see my sons hugely enjoying that aspect of college life. Um, you know, programmes are different. We, we have developed our programmes very strongly within UCD and elsewhere, much more interdisciplinary, much more experiential in terms of spending time in industry, spending time outside Ireland. So we have expanded our programmes, but I hope keeping the core value of the intellectual challenge and, and, and flourishing that you get in a university environment and also that personal flourishing that you get at that really transformational stage in your life. It's something that I'm, I'm very aware of from my own experience and now looking at my sons, that transformative impact of higher education on an individual and on a country.
presumably your own sons would have the benefit of living in Dublin. Not all students do. And there's a real issue now about accommodation and people either not being able to get it uh, or not being able to get it anyway close to the university and certainly not at a level they can afford. There's an enormous issue around that. We are part of that broader housing issue for the country. And, you know, it's particularly uh, damaging, I suppose, in our case, because you know, if people experience a problem in sourcing accommodation, it provides a barrier to accessing higher education, particularly for those who are disadvantaged. And that is a huge problem for us in terms of equity and in terms of our progress as a society. So we're doing all that we can to work with our students' union on this. We have, I think, 4,100 beds on our campus at the moment. So we're fortunate to have that amount of accommodation and we've invested in it a lot over the years. About 1,200 of those are reserved for incoming first-year students. We're working with the students' union on things like a digs drive to get the old concept of the digs back up and running as a big resource for students. We're working with private providers. The main thing that we would love to do is we have planning permission for a further 1,200 beds on our campus, but we can't afford to build them at the moment because the cost of construction does not make economic sense. So yeah. we would love to work with government to find a way to close that gap and, and in a way that supports disadvantaged students to access that accommodation. So those talks are ongoing. You mentioned the student union, Orla. Um, I think they brought out a report recently and they they accused the university, your university, of which you now uh, are the president, of building luxury student accommodation for the few rather than genuinely affordable purpose-built accommodation for the many. In other words, you're looking really to your international students who can afford maybe to pay more for their accommodation. The accommodation is not luxury accommodation by any stretch of the imagination and we benchmark very carefully what we do against comparator universities. As I say, we want to build more accommodation and we want to be able to do it in a way with government support that makes it affordable for students. But is it is it the case that you, you know, maybe because of financial considerations or constraints that the, the, accommod- the building of accommodation is focused mainly on international, on, it, on attracting international students? No, it is at least as much on meeting the national need. We are entirely conscious of our role as a university to, to serve Ireland, to support Ireland, and it is at least as important to us that our national students be able to access UCD. You have something like uh, 30,000 students, I think, mm, at university. Over 33,000. What's the breakdown between, say, international students and students from Ireland? Maybe about a quarter of those might come from outside Ireland. Right. And, um, and and you have at least the previous plan, which I've no doubt you would be revisiting now that you're the president, uh, talked about increasing the number of staff by something like 50 percent. That's right. And, yes. I mean, would there be a correspond over 10 years? Would there be a corresponding ambition to increase the student uh, population by something similar? Uh, not by something similar, no, because we very much want to reduce our staff student ratio. This is an absolute priority for us um, because we are an absolute outlier internationally. Uh, you mentioned briefly earlier the international rankings, which of course are very important to universities as much as we might criticise them, we have to recognise their importance. In the QS rankings, so one of the big two rankings, in terms of staff-student ratio, UCD is outside the top 600. Now, that's 20% of the overall ranking. So it's like a lead weight around our ankles as we are seeking to excel, seeking to ascend those rankings. And of course, it also diminishes the student experience and it also affects what our faculty are able to deliver in research and other areas of what they do. So it is of paramount importance to us and I think for us as a sector nationally that we have to be able to get more staff into higher education because at the moment our staff-student ratio is nowhere near what it should be when you look at all our comparators internationally. 
I think your annual budget is what in in or around the order of what seven hundred million That's euro right, yes. a year, yeah. of which maybe five hundred million would be for just kind of current, core activities, yeah, current yeah. and core, current current spending and so forth. Now, uh, if you and you say that there's there's an underspend uh, on on university education, no doubt. Again, as somebody who goes about things methodically and fact-based, you know, sort of case building, you would be saying to the government, to the department, to the minister, we need more. Mm. And you'd also say, here's what we can do. Exactly. So exactly. what what do you think would be a better or a, a a more useful amount of money? I mean, would you would you say it would be would be a billion? I mean, what 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 do you think you need? Well, helpfully, government have put a figure on this um, of 307 million per annum. So that is the figure that government have accepted is needed by the sector. Uh, the opposition also agree that this is the figure that is needed by the sector. So, but that has to be divvied up among all the universities. It, it does, it does. But, 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 and you know, we we might like to see a higher figure. But I'd be very happy to start with that figure. So let's move to that. What can we deliver for that? We can future-proof Irish industry in all sorts of ways that are necessary for our, our continuing economic success as a knowledge economy. I was out last Friday night. The American Chamber had their dinner talking. To the leadership of the multinationals, they know this. They are all highlighting the need for additional uh, investment in higher education and research because they see what is coming for their industries. They see new technologies in cell and gene therapy, in quantum technologies, in sustainability. They know that they need individuals with those new skill sets and they need the universities to be providing those. So we want to provide the talent pipeline that the country needs. We want to draw down international funding from the likes of Horizon Europe. We want to have an infrastructure that supports industry. We want to solve the challenges of society and, and support societal engagement around many of the big issues that are now creeping in to our society. So we can deliver, but we do need that backing. Um, and the same is true in research. If you look at the percentage that government invests, so as a percentage of all government expenditure, it invests 0.85% in research and development. Now, the European average is 1.44%, the EU average. So we're way behind the average. We're at the bottom of the table. It goes Ireland, Lithuania, Latvia, Bulgaria, Malta, Romania. The top of the list, Norway, Germany, Iceland, Denmark, Finland, Netherlands. That is That top group is where we need to be. And that top group is where we would position ourselves and yet we're not spending appropriately. We're not investing. And there's a quote that I love. I think it's Joe Biden it's attributed to. He says, don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget and I'll tell you what you value. So if you look, you know, government is all talk about the knowledge economy. We need to see this reflected in the budget. Which is of a piece, I suppose, with the campaign that you've supported to increase the, the support or to increase the stipend given to researchers. Absolutely. Researchers, People who would have had their primary degree would be uh, wanting and being asked to commit maybe for four or more years That's right, of yes. further research. And I think it went from 18,500 uh, which is a very small amount, um, relatively speaking. Uh, and there's talk now of it going to 25. But even that, you wouldn't get rich on it. There's talk of it going to 25. In the last budget, it went from 18 and a half to 19,000. So there's talk of it going to 25, which, you know, again, we'll take that. We'll take that and we'll, we'll work from there if we need to work from there. But that would be a very significant increase. And I think we'd be happy with that. But it is absolutely needed because we're not currently able to A, provide our PhD students with the stipends that they need to live on, but B, therefore to attract in the best PhD students. And if you start to lose that pipeline of talent, you lose the talent pipeline into the economy, 
faculty won't necessarily stick around in Ireland if they can't get the students they need to do their work with. So there, there, there's, you know, there, there's a significant so what, need there. what countries are you competing with then? Oh, we're competing with, the, well, the UK, we're competing with, very close at hand, but we're competing with all the companies, we're, the countries we're competing with, the Netherlands, with Denmark, with France, with Italy, with the United States, with Spain. So all what, of what, kind of, what kind of support will they get by way of a stipend in, in those countries? I mean, uh, it, it's very variable, but some would be up into the 30,000s, for example. So, but 25 will give us a good start. That's 25 tax-free. So that will give us a good start. And there are many, many attractions to doing a PhD in Ireland. We've wonderful facilities. We've wonderful research going on. Students love to come and live and work in Dublin, in UCD. And, and, and something I do want to acknowledge, we have a department now, just for the past few years, of Further and Higher Education, Research, Innovation and Science, led by Minister Simon and Harris. Simon Harris. This is a wonderful development on our landscape. It's a very, very active department, really understand the problems, really seeking to support the sector to be as good as we can be. Yes, challenging us in many ways, but I think it's wonderful to have that and wonderful to have that government energy and priority attached to the sector. There's something else I'd like to ask you about uh, on on the campus, and it's kind of been the subject of a bit of controversy over the last couple of years, and that is the... um, the Confucius Institute in UCD. What exactly is that and what does it do and why are people concerned about it? The Confucius Institute was established, I think around maybe 2004, 2006, something like that, to deliver largely Chinese language education, largely to school students and to businessmen and women who are looking to travel to China and they hold some cultural events around Chinese culture. So it is to support Irish economic interaction with government funding, to, uh, Irish government funding to support Irish economic interaction with China through the provision of language teaching. Now, there has been some, I think, confusion and, and it's something that I want to address as president around the teaching of the Confucius Institute within UCD. The Confucius Institute does not deliver any modules within UCD. But is there another institute that is heavily influenced by it uh, there, on there, campus as well? There, there is a sister institute, the Irish Institute for Chinese Studies, that, 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 as it's called, which is subject to all the normal UCD governance, all the normal quality controls, all the normal programmatic inspection. Um, and yes, that does deliver teaching to our students. But we are looking to make it clearer, maybe the distinction between the two, because it has been the cause of confusion, which I think has not been helpful to us. Yeah, and I think there was a, a move there a couple of years ago now. It's probably three or four years back. Uh, there was a plan to revise your uh, academic freedom policy to allow for, quote, different interpretations of the concept to accommodate UCD's expansion into China and elsewhere. Now, there was resistance from academics to that plan. Was it shelved? It was was completely shelved. And we have a very, very strong statement in support of academic freedom, which is something that I personally absolutely give my strongest support to. You have international outposts, Orla. I think you have an international college in Beijing. You have a medical college in Malaysia. um, Others as well. I mean, are there there difficulties in relation to academic freedom in being part of those? Uh, Well, for those who are working in those societies, different norms apply. So yes, it is something that we need to be careful of, but we are writing in now to all our partnerships. We are writing in our stipulations around academic freedom to make sure that UCD staff, UCD students understand our view and and, and feel protected by our commitment to academic freedom. And do you think you can can adhere though, or you can ensure that there is adherence to your own standards of academic freedom in those places. It is absolutely our desire to do that and it's something that I'll be keeping a very watchful eye on. Your desire isn't necessarily the same as being a decision or an ability to implement. 
and I'm three weeks in the job, but it's something that I will be giving significant attention to. And also, I mean, I suppose you'll be well aware too that Michal Martin, the Tonish, the mm. Minister for Foreign Affairs, has spoken about maybe reassessing. I won't, he didn't use the phrase, uh, but we've, we've seen it, I suppose. I, Ireland's and maybe Europe's love affair with China and maybe reassessing that. Is that something that, you know, you see the need for? Uh, I think the Tonish speech was, was very helpful. I thought he spoke very clearly. And um, he also spoke, spoke about the continuing need for economic ties. I think he put a figure of 34.5 billion on the trade back and forwards between Ireland and China. So clearly there is still a very important economic imperative to support through the likes of language instruction that activity. I'm very conscious that the big research challenges say in sustainability we can't get anywhere close to solving them without Chinese involvement. So I think that's a very strong reason to continue to work together. But also for me education is at its core the most positive way to build bridges between nations, between disparate views of the world. So to have an educational relationship between parts of the world that might be separated geographically and in other ways, I think is so, so important. And it's something and that I will con- absolutely support. UCD would by no means be unique in this. And oh, no, not at all. There are, I think, with, three Confucius uh, Institutes in Ireland, for example. There are 30 in the UK and Rishi Sunak, you know, some months back when he was campaigning, was saying he was going to close them. Now I see he's saying that no, on reassessment and on examination, he sees it would be but disproportionate. They, There's no need to do that. They have been closed in some places, haven't they? In some places, yes. Yeah. Yeah, but then you tend to get something else springs up to, to fill that gap. So, so there is a need, again, delivering language education to school children. Th- that's great. What, I'm entirely happy to have that what, going what, on what's the, campus. what's the association with China worth in funding to UCD? Well, I, I don't have that figure and I, it probably would be commercially sensitive in, in any event. It's not a huge number of our of our student base. It's, I think, the third most important market for us in terms of international students. Right. Uh, behind, I, behind the US and India. As you say, you're just a short period in the job. Uh, It has been quite the year for you in personal, professional terms, but also in family terms. Your your, your father, Frank Feely, was literally a towering figure Mm -hmm. in public administration uh, in this city. He was city and county manager, county manager and city manager for a period. Um, And I'm wondering to what extent maybe your own uh, family life was kind of imbued with the sense of public service. I know your late sister Emer died uh, at a very young age uh, and very sadly uh, in the last year or so ago. So talk to me first of all about about your family. Um, was there always a kind of a public service strain there? Uh, well, I'm the eldest of four, grew up in Temple Oak. I suppose there was. Dad worked all his life for Dublin Corporation, the corporation, as we used to call it. It was only when I lived in the States that I, I referred to my dad working for the corporation. They thought it sounded so Orwellian and bizarre. But remember, the corpo was, was part of our fabric in, in Dublin. His father was, was a Garda, uh, out of a family from Leitrim. So, yes, I suppose there is that view of public service that dad would have been very, very strong on. Not overt about it, but there was always the sense of, you know, that the, the commitment to Ireland, to what we do as a country was important and was worth doing. I suppose this may be part of why I came back from Berkeley. We talked about that earlier on. Yeah, and he was somebody who was seen, I suppose, in the same way as maybe Rudy Giuliani was yeah. in his better oh, days in New York. In the better uh, days. Let's go with Ed Koch, maybe, or yes, one of those figures. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, he was he was instantly recognisable. He was. And he put himself about. He wasn't he wasn't a, a, a civil servant who kind of stayed in his office, but he engaged with the public, oh, he engaged completely. with the media. Completely. Which was very unusual for somebody in Dad's job at the time and, and even since. He, Dad loved Dublin. He loved the people of Dublin. He loved the character of the city 
and he loved to get out and about and he wanted to bring that enthusiasm and energy and spread it across the whole of the population of the city through initiatives like the Dublin Millennium and he did it to, with extraordinary success. Maybe stretching history a little bit in terms of the foundation very of the slightly, city. Very slightly, yes. Yeah, yes, um, but all to, to good effect. Absolutely and uh, we all remember well at least those who were around the, 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 the Millennium Milk Bottles uh, and indeed, a lot of other things. And indeed, the, yes. Um, and, and the Anna Livia Monument I think which is now up close to Collins Barracks as opposed to being where it was, the I know. Hotel and That's all right. Of that. Yes, yes. But it's been such a joy for me, particularly since I took up my job a few weeks ago. First of all, the warmth that I'm receiving about UCD, so many people having a connection to the university, but also to dad. So many people come up to me and say, oh, I knew your father or my father worked with your father. You know, it's, 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 it's lovely. And it makes him feel very present in yeah. my life at the time when we are still, you know, so close to, 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 to his loss back in February. Yeah. And... What about, I mean, in retirement, uh, and he was retired, I'm sure, when the all of the tribunals and the stuff about corruption and planning and so forth um, uh, emerged. How did he reflect on that? What, 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 what was his attitude to it? Oh, it caused him great, great sadness um, and, and disgust, I think, because dad was somebody who was so straight up. You know, he, he was... Uh, and he absolutely impressed that on all of us. You know, if if you if we were walking and you know inadvertently dropped a piece of paper out of our pocket, you know, we'd make us go back and pick up the bit of litter and put it in the bin. You know, everything had to be done to the highest of standards. Um, a, a story that my family remember is there was Dad did a small favour for somebody, and there was nothing ex- exceptional or unusual about this favour. It was very very trivial. And the person came over. It was Christmas one year. We were all very small and gave us a soda stream. You remember the soda stream, the fizzy, fizzy drinks. Uh, Machines. Myself, Emer, our eyes were out on stalks on this. It was our dream to get a soda stream. So dad took it, put us all in the back of the car, drove us over to this man's house to give him back the soda stream. Emer weeping on the back seat <laughs> because there's no way, there is no way that he would be in, you know. So he was sending a message to the person who presumably yes. in goodwill and good faith and yes. season that was in it wanted to acknowledge something that was done but also maybe teaching oh, you guys something as well. Completely, yes. But then week later they bought, went out and bought us a soda stream which immediately gathered dust and left a sticky trail on the, the, the tray in our dining room but yeah no he, he did leave us those messages Yeah and so, so I mean he, he I think he did receive one of the complaints uh, was it from Tom Gilmartin? He did and he brought it to the Minister and he brought it to the Gardaí and yes he was very much involved in that process and as I say, it was a source of enormous sadness to him um, in his career. I remember I was in Berkeley at the time this all happened, but I, even at that remove, I was aware of the stress that had caused him and the deep, deep sorrow that had caused him. Something, though, that brought him great, I presume, satisfaction, joy and happiness in his latter days was your own appointment. Yes, and, and Dad died just the day before I was appointed as president. But, of course, given the nature of these processes, I'd gone through the interview. So I knew that I was the candidate who'd emerged successful from the interview and I was to be recommended to the governing authority on the Tuesday and Dad died on the Monday. But I was able to go in and tell him that I was the successful candidate coming out of the interviews and he was overjoyed. I can't tell you how happy he was about this and how overjoyed I was to be able to share that moment with him. He he had been hugely invested in the whole process. You know, he was saying to me, 
because you know we knew he was very sick uh, all the way through the process he was saying to me I'm not going to die until you get that job so <laughs> <laughs> he literally was able to die happy then uh, literally literally yes yes uh, yeah. that must have been a wonderful conversation oh it was it, it, it was it was but he was so supportive of all of us at every turn of our lives so supportive of his grandchildren whom he adored he was just one of life's enthusiasts and getting out there and supporting people and causes that mattered to him and, and I think it was really important to me you know as, as a young girl growing up to have that really strong voice of, of my father his endorsement ringing in my ears as I went out into the world you know often I at, at the early stage of my career I was often the only woman in the room so to have that very very strong endorsement and support was very important to me as of course was the support of my wonderful wonderful mother from I was Abby about Leakes. to ask you about your mother tell me about yeah, her yeah mother from Abby Leakes and she um, she worked in, in a Dub- great county where I was born myself right on, that's yes and, and, and a wonderful town and, and she grew up on the main street there her mother had a sweet shop there her father died when mum was quite young. Uh, she came up to Dublin to work in the corporation, as so many did in the 50s. We've gorgeous photographs of mum and dad looking incredibly glamorous on O'Connell Bridge back in the day. So um, so they met and married. And then, of course, mum, as was the, the nature of things at the time, uh, had to leave work when she got married. And she concentrated on bringing the four of us up and did just the most remarkable job. A wonderful house filled, filled of love and laughter and the smell of apple tart and that. It was it was wonderful. Mum had a bad stroke in 2020. So she's in a care home now receiving wonderful care. Um, but so, so we can have lovely chats with her and, you know, it, it, it's... And she yeah. knows and no doubt enjoys your success as well. I told her about it and now she, she doesn't necessarily always grasp things, but I think she grasped this and she said, oh, you're, you're a great woman. And because she would always have said to me back in the day, you're a great girl. So I said, am I not a great girl anymore? And she said, no, no, I've promoted you now. So, <laughs> <laughs> But there was very sadly, by way of contrast, the passing of your sister, Emer, relatively recently as well, which obviously was a great sadness to the whole family, yourself. And also, I think it was known as well, that widely known that she was the, the wife of Tony Holohan, mm. who was center, front and centre in dealing with the whole COVID crisis. But she was somebody who was a public servant in her own right. She was. She was a doctor herself, a public health doctor herself and, and a wonderful one. And we were all delighted when she did die that Micheál Martin paid tribute to her having worked with her uh, in public health strategies. But um, but more than that, she was the most remarkable person. Um, after Emer died, a number of people used the same phrase to us. They said she was somebody who could light up a room. And, and she really was, not just because she was smart and funny and gorgeous and charismatic, though she was all of those things, um, but because everybody shone a little bit brighter when Emer was around. She had one of those real gifts for people. She'd sit down beside, you know, a toddler in a tantrum or a quiet person sitting in a corner and you'd see them animate and come to life and start laughing. She was uh, just su- such a life force and it's it, it's still, it's just over two years now since her death, still very, very hard to believe that, that she's gone and, and to have lost a, a sibling. I remember when she was diagnosed with cancer, it was 2012, so our parents were into their 80s by then, so at a stage when, of course, you don't take anything for granted. Uh, our children were young, so there's always a bit of your brain reserved for worrying about them. But it never occurred to me that anything could happen to Emer. She was such a force for life. And, and I always assumed whatever life would throw at the two of us, that I'd be there for her and she'd be there for me and we'd laugh and we'd cry and we'd set the world to rights. How did she deal with her illness? Oh, with incredible strength, in, incredible bravery. She she was just remarkable because it, the disease she had was the cancer of the blood cells called multiple myeloma. Um, it's not curable but it is treatable so she went through many many phases of treatment many of which were incredibly 
difficult. Um, the nature of the progression of the disease then is also that it was very, very painful. She would get these lesions on her bones, um, which were incredibly painful in all sorts of ways. And then she had to deal with the emotional strain as well of, of, of knowing that this awful disease was hanging over her. But she was so, so strong and, and, and such, you know, such a wonderful person and, and, and such a, a role model to live by. Obviously, great memories and, and great achievements as well on her part oh, in her hugely. own time. You yes. talked about her lighting up a, a room. I, I suspect your ambition would be to light up a university. Uh, <laughs> um, yes. And, you know, you've got a 10 year term ahead of you. How would you go about maybe uh, linking in with the students? I mean, are you, are you the kind of person who would want to maybe ramble into a canteen or a coffee oh, shop I do. and of course sit I do. down? Oh, of course I do. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And going to student events and working with our students union is a hugely important part of the job. Last Thursday night, I was at this sports awards dinner where we gave awards to all our, our sports stars. Israel Olatunde won the top award, a wonderful, wonderful figure for us to have in UCD. We're so proud of him. But every club that came up and I'd be giving them a medal and taking the photo with them and I'd say, what did your club achieve this year? Oh, we won the InterVarsities. Oh, we won the UK Ireland. Oh, we advanced our equality, diversity, inclusion strategy. All do doing brilliant, brilliant, brilliant things. And to be able to join them in that experience is, is a huge privilege for me as, as their president. And I'm so conscious that I want to be their president and to be known by the students and to be supporting them in every aspect of their college life. Well, I think everybody wants you to have a fair wind. Uh, good luck with your ambitions and your career as it's going to unfold, as I say, for the next 10 years. Orla Feely, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure and privilege to listen to you. Thank you so much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Sean. To hear more in this series, go to rte.ie forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.